Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Great to see everybody this morning. How many of you are thankful that you are in the house of the Lord this morning? Put your hands together. Let's worship God. That applause line is for him this morning. It's so great to see everybody today. For those of you that may be our guests, maybe this is your first time at Hillcrest, and we welcome you here this morning. We're so happy to have you and hope that you'll let us know that you're here. There's a guest registration card that we would encourage you to complete. I just leave it with one of the attendants out in the back. And then if you need further information, those folks back in the Next Step Center would be happy to help you along the way. We're just grateful everybody's here and grateful for all of you who are with us in an online capacity somehow today. Thanks for tuning in. We know these are still crazy and unpredictable days. And uh, so many of our folks are still feeling the need to watch uh, from home. And I'm just so grateful that we're able uh, to do that. I'm grateful that you're here, though. You look good this morning. Grateful to be a part of our Hillcrest family. We're in uh, the book of Malachi again this morning. It's the last book of the Old Testament. So if you know where the New Testament starts with the Gospel of Matthew, you can find Matthew, hang a sharp left, and you'll be right there. You may have a blank page or a title page to navigate through, but you'll be right there in the book of Malachi. And we're once again in chapter number one this morning. This time next week, we as a nation will be uh, commemorating the 57th anniversary of one of, <clears throat> excuse me, of one of the great tragedies. I think I swallowed a bug. <clears throat> the 57th anniversary of one of the great tragedies of our country, and that is, of course, the assassination of our nation's 35th president, John F. Kennedy. It's easy for me to remember which anniversary of that day is because I was born just two months prior to it happening. So it's the 57th anniversary, and your pastor is 57 years young. Though I know I don't look it, it's true. Um, and that was a tragic day. The president uh, was counseled by many people not to go. There were many elements of hostility against him in the great state of Texas. But of course, his vice president was from the state of Texas, Mr. Johnson, and Mr. Kennedy was about to run for re-election in 1964, and he knew that it would not be possible for him to win without taking the state of Texas, and so he decided to go. But the visit was loose. He decided not to include the protective bubble top on his Lincoln Continental limousine that day, leaving him exposed to massive throngs of people that had congregated together along the many streets that lined the parade route. In fact, the parade route was actually published that morning in the Dallas Morning News. Everybody that wanted to know in the city of Dallas where the motorcade would be going, all they had to do was open up the newspaper and you could find it there. But of course, the biggest threat were the myriad of tall buildings. There were literally thousands of people hanging out of windows there in the buildings of downtown Dallas, and people had assembled on rooftops. It was a Secret Service agent's worst nightmare. And of course, that whole thing stands as a living example of the dangers of being careless with priceless things. Clint's, Clint Hill, who was the Secret Service agent assigned to the president's body that day, his body man, has testified many times that if he'd only been one step quicker, one step, one step quicker 
He could have positioned himself in such a way so as to protect the president's life from that fatal shot. I want to talk to you this morning from Malachi chapter 1 about some dangers to the Christian life, particularly the dangers of being altogether careless and loose with spiritual things. Because one of the messages that's consistent throughout the pages of God's Word from the Old Testament all the way through to the New, in fact, all the way through to the last book of the Bible for that matter, is that there's a high price to pay when we become altogether too casual in our worship of a holy God. And so it's to this subject about worship, our worship of God, that the prophet turns in Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse number 6. This is a lengthy text, and I'm not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time, but let's just focus on a portion of it to get us started, beginning in Malachi 1 and verse 6. Everybody ready to read? Would you say amen? A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 14, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Father, this morning as we come into the glory of your holy presence, I pray that you would give us a vision of our Father God high and lifted up, exalted in the heavens. Help us to see you in all of your wonder and in the holiness which you alone perfectly possess. And may our understanding of who you are and what you truly deserve change the way that your people respond to you today as we assemble ourselves for the worship of God. Speak to us now by your Spirit. Teach us from your Word. Change us that we may live lives that bring honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, if you weren't able to tell uh, from this text, this is, of course, a passage about worship, worship, worship. It's the fundamental subject matter that the prophet turns his attention to this morning. Worship, of course, as you should know, is 
a critical component, maybe even the central component of the community life of the people of God. Can you name me anything that we do as an assembled piece of people of God coming together, anything more important than our worship of God? You couldn't do it because there really is nothing that's as important in terms of our life as followers of the Lord than how we worship the Lord. It's the reason that we have the first commandment of the Old Testament of the 10 commandments that are listed there in Exodus 20. It's the reason why the first is listed first. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You are to have no other gods before me. But the nation of Israel had uh, pretty much a zigzag pattern in their relationship with the Lord. They rode the proverbial spiritual roller coaster in terms of how they worshiped the Lord. And here, 400 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the nation, who of course were led by the priests, the Levitical priests, had obviously once again grown very careless in their worship of God. They'd gotten into this pattern even after going through an experience of great revival that we discussed last week when they had come back from a period of time in exile and rebuilt the temple and reestablished the sacrificial system in what's known as the post-exilic period of Israel. They'd rebuilt the walls around the city of Jerusalem and everybody was excited about this new and reinvigorated time of the identity, the corporate identity of the people of God, but they'd once again gotten into some bad habits that had marked them in their checkered past before. They'd begun to offer, obviously from this text, they'd begun to offer to a holy God second best, second rate, second tier, second hand offerings before the Lord. And the end result, as God himself makes clear, is that he was dishonored and his people were in a spiritual wilderness because of it. And the sad thing is they were still gathering together every week, thinking themselves to be living a life of revival. And they didn't even know how spiritually dead they'd become. Last week, Malachi reminded us of the believer's greatest responsibility, or the great believer's greatest assurance, rather, and that was the love of God. God loves His sovereignly chosen people who He's called into an eternal relationship with Himself. Today, He turns His attention to a believer's greatest responsibility. We go from our greatest assurance, centering around the love of God, to our greatest responsibility, which is a consistent awareness of the holiness of God. And this is just as important for the new covenant people of God called the church. 2,400 years after Malachi had written it to the covenant of God known, or covenant people of God known as Israel. Hebrews 12 and 28 is a fitting appeal, I think. Where the writer to the Hebrews says, let us, let us, the new covenant community of faith, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And so we want to talk for a few minutes today about this very subject, acceptable worship. That's our greatest responsibility, acceptable worship as a community of faith in the presence of a holy God. Here is what I think we need to know 
about a believer's greatest responsibility and by extension our church's greatest responsibility. And we begin today with the most obvious, namely that God demands reverence and worship, or reverence rather, and respect as a part of worship. Reverence and respect. And the fact is, he wasn't getting either one. Verse six, again, if then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? Now, we're reminded here in this opening verse that then as now, God relates to his people in two fundamental kinds of ways. First, as a father, and second, as a sovereign Lord. Our God is our heavenly father, but our God is also our master and king creator, sustainer of the entire universe. And so not only is He our Heavenly Father, our loving Heavenly Father, He is our Creator, Sovereign Lord. And you know, with respect to the fatherhood of God, God had wanted the people, top to bottom, to understand how important fathers were to their community life, physically and spiritually. And he wanted his people to know how he expected fathers to be treated, so much so that he codifies it as a critical element in the most important commands he ever gives, which are, of course, the Ten Commandments right there in the heart. Command number five, honor your father and your mother. And certainly if that applies to our earthly fathers, how much more, knowing that God is our heavenly father, how much more does this concept of ascribing honor to God and demonstrating honor to God apply to a heavenly father who never fails his children? But God's not only a loving father, he makes it very clear here, he is sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And the only right response to a sovereign Lord, you know what a Lord is, don't you? How about the boss? How about the one who is a total and complete authority? How about the one that calls the shots? The one to whom you and I are ultimately accountable. And if that's true of God, if God is our sovereign Lord, there is only one right response and it's absolute submission and total and complete obedience. There is no other alternative. And so when we disobey God in any way, shape, or form, we fail to properly submit to God. And we fail to demonstrate the reality that He is genuinely Lord of our lives. And so responding to God as a sovereign Lord means not only do you have to honor God, but that you have to learn to live with a healthy what? Fear of God. That's a misunderstood concept oftentimes because when we talk about fearing somebody, we're talking ultimately most of the time about being afraid of somebody, but that's really not the proper way to understand the fear of God. We're not talking about unmitigated terror so that whenever you feel like God shows up, you feel like you have to dive under the pew. That's not what the concept means. There are some people, by the way, that have a problem relating to God as Father because they had a problem related to their earthly father in some way. And I never would want to belittle that. Most people in the United States of America, I think, have a less than stellar relationship with their fathers. And so because of that, there, were, there, are, people, there are probably people in the room today that grew up like literally afraid of their father for whatever reason. 
And the problem with that is you tend to import that on your understanding of God. And so because you really didn't like your father, there are many people that really don't like God. And that's an inappropriate kind of response to God. The Bible says we are to have a fear of God, but that's a word that really, as you've probably heard many times, more has to do with this idea of reverence or this deep-seated respect. Having a fear of God, I think, always begins with a proper understanding of the holiness of God. If you don't understand the holiness of God, you'll never have an appropriate biblical fear of God. It will never happen. An appropriate biblical fear of God and living with that kind of response in terms of how you relate to God is always based on a proper understanding that God is holy. You have to be aware of the holiness of God and the power of God and the judgment and the discipline of God that He will mete out in response to sin. God is a God who always responds to sin. I think of those brave Hebrew midwives. You remember the story of the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1? When Pharaoh ordered all of those Hebrew boys, those newborn boys, basically killed, it was probably the earliest recorded form of partial birth abortion. These midwives were called in and said, here's the deal. If, you, if you're delivering the baby and when the baby's delivered, you see it's a male, you need to kill the baby immediately. And this came as a direct uh, edict from the king, Pharaoh himself, but they wouldn't do it. They risked their lives disobeying Pharaoh's command because they knew it wasn't right. They knew that in order to honor the law of God, they had to violate the law of Pharaoh, which is always an appropriate thing to do. But what led them to do it? The Bible says those women, what? Feared the Lord. They feared the Lord. And they wouldn't do it. And I'm just telling you, it's a healthy fear of God, that kind of fear of God that keeps you and me walking in a life of obedience. It's a fear of God that constrains our response to God and constrains our behavior and compels us to live in a way that brings honor and glory to Him. You lose the fear of God and you become like a ship at sea that loses its electronics you got no way to navigate. You've lost your electrical system. The stars are obscured. You're just totally given over to the wind and the waves. And when you and I lose the healthy fear of a holy God, we become subject to nothing more than being blown around by the winds and the waves of the culture. And this is why God poses the questions from the get-go. Where is my honor? And where is my fear, O priests? Now, this passage of Scripture all the way through the ninth verse of Malachi chapter 2 is fundamentally addressed to the priest. But don't mop your brow too soon, because the last time I checked, the Bible says in the New Testament that every single one of us is a priest before God. Can I have an amen this morning? We're all a kingdom of priests. Here at Hillcrest, we believe in what's known as the priesthood of every believer. You're a priest, I'm a priest, all God's real children are priests. 
before the Lord. So it applies to all of us. I'm applying this fundamentally to the priest and to the people who were the ones bringing the sacrifices, who knew the same things that the priest knew anyway. And they'd lost both. They'd lost the honor of God and they'd lost the fear of God. And so God, through the prophet Malachi, accuses them of what? Despising his name. Now, there's not a person in the room today, this morning, that would ever say, I despise the name of God. But did you know that your actions can actually indicate that that's exactly what you do? If you come offering God second fiddle, second rate, second best, you're actually despising the name of God. Now, again, we tend to misrepresent what that word means. We think of the concept of despise, and we attach a degree of violence to it. Like when you despise somebody, you want to go up and just grab them by the throat. Not that I ever would want to do that at Hillcrest, by the way. But we, we kind of see it in an extreme kind of way. But you know what the word despise means? It just means to consider worthless. To consider lacking in value. Somebody gives you a piece of cosmetic jewelry and you're upset because you think it should be a diamond, oftentimes you'll toss that in a drawer. Well, you despise it. You just think it's worthless. It's not worth wearing or it's not worth showing off. That word is used in connection to Esau. We looked at Esau last week. Jacob, I have chosen, but Esau, I have hated. In other words, I have not chosen him, God says. And there is a very famous story in which this concept of despisement is attached to Esau's name because that's exactly the way Esau looked at his birthright. He despised it. How do you know he despised it? Because he traded it off for a bowl of stew. He gave in to his physical urges. He was more concerned about himself than he was bringing honor to God. He was more concerned about satisfying and gratifying the lusts and the desires of his flesh than he was bringing honor to a holy God. And all of that came as a result because he had lost sight of the holiness and the majesty and the grandeur of God. So he traded his most valuable possession, his birthright as the firstborn son of Isaac. He traded it for instant gratification, a bowl of stew. And here comes Malachi, and he makes that same charge to the people of Israel and to their leaders. It's a strong charge, so strong that the people initially deny it. What are you talking about? So we see the cynicism of the people again. They ask for evidence in verse 6. How? How have we despised your name? How have we polluted you? We're gathering together, man. We're coming to the temple. We're gathering for times of prayer. We're bringing sacrifices to the temple. What are you talking about? Malachi, the Italian prophet. No, God helps us identify the problem here in verse 7. You want to know how you've despised me? Verse 7, by offering polluted food on the altar, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? And that's the issue right there, my brothers and my sisters. The issue is inferior worship marked by inferior sacrifices. God had made very clear in the law, these people have been walking with God for centuries. 
He'd made clear in the law that the people were to offer the first of the flock, the best of the flock, the unblemished of the flock, not the least and the worst, not the sick and the lame, not the blind and the diseased. You know what this is? Cutting corners in worship. That's what it is. Cutting corners and doing it to their own profit. Oh my. They were, they were doing it to their own profit. I mean, why give God the very best? I mean, if all he's looking for is a shedding of blood, we can shed the three-legged goat just as easily, right? Because we can't sell that one. That one can't make us any money. Let's just give that one to God. He gets his blood, and we call from the flock the one we can't make any money off of. Y'all see what's going on here? Say amen. So they offered God what they couldn't use or what they couldn't sell or what they what couldn't make them a shekel down at the livestock yard. They offered the blind, the lame, the disease, and God wasn't happy about it. God is not happy. Are y'all still with me? Say amen. God's never happy about being treated like a secondhand thrift store God. We glorify thrift stores in our culture anyway, because you can make a good deal at a thrift store. But y'all not do it in the house of the Lord. God says, I want to say tongue in cheek, but I don't think his tongue was in his cheek when he said it. Won't you present that offering to your governor? You get invited to the governor's mansion. Won't you take that three-legged goat down there and offer that to the governor and see what kind of response you get? Will he accept you? Will he show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? No, you wouldn't even do that. Those people wouldn't even consider that. You'd offer the governor your best because the quality of the gift says a whole lot about what you really think about the person you're giving the gift to. Isn't that right? I mean, we often say, well, it's the thought that counts. No, with God, it's the gift that counts. I mean, the thought matters. The thought's important. And if they, listen, if that three-legged goat is the only goat you've got, it's the best that you've got to offer, that's perfectly fine with God if it's the best. So yeah, the thought does matter, but the gift matters to God very much. I think I've told you all before about the time I opened up a Christmas present one year and there was the box, Rolex. <laughs> Rolex, baby, right there. Somebody, a good friend of mine gave me a Rolex watch for Christmas. And I fell on his neck. I tackled him. I was so excited about it. Only two weeks later to find the watch wasn't running anymore. I've never heard of a Rolex that didn't run. And so I thought, well, I better take this to a jeweler. And the day I went to take it to a jeweler, I picked a thing up and stumbled or hit my elbow or something and dropped it. And it went on the floor and the backing came out of it. And all of the stuff inside came bouncing out of it like a snake out of one of those tin cans. And it wasn't nothing but red wire and plastic. Now, I got no problem receiving a fake Rolex, which is obviously what that was. But the guy didn't tell me it was a fake Rolex, and he knew I thought it was the real thing, and he was perfectly fine with that. And sometimes I think spiritually we can do the same things with God. I mean, how many of you have ever gotten out of the car on the way to church? 
you're at each other's throats, you're screaming at the kids, the kids are screaming back at you, and then you get out of the car when the golf cart guy pulls up at Hillcrest and immediately go and praise the Lord, brother, so good to see you today, hallelujah. I mean, you just pop right into the religious language as if nothing is wrong at all. Then you bring that right into the worship and you raise in your hand and everybody is despising one another in the household. But everybody around you thinks, boy, if I could just be like that family, they've got it all together. Man, I'd love to be like them. Well, they don't have it all together. And neither do I, and probably you don't either. So there's an important lesson, I think, in this incredibly important passage of Scripture given to a people almost 2,500 years ago, and that's to remember who God is. You're never really going to worship the Lord if you forget who God is. He is our heavenly Father who loves us with an everlasting love, and He is sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, who is a God not only of love, but a God of discipline and a God of judgment who always judges sin. So this means we never approach God with inferior, second-rate worship. But then there's a second thing we learn, and that is that when we do, it's corrupt. And corrupt worship is worthless worship, and it demands repentance. Acceptable worship isn't just about doing the right things. It's about doing the right things with the right heart. And again, you might be able to hide your motivations from others, but let me just say this morning, you cannot hide your heart from God. In Acts chapter 5, you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They came in, made an offering to the Lord, made a contribution to the community of faith. Ananias and Sapphira tried to do the wrong way, but they did the, or they tried to do the right thing, but they did the right thing in the wrong way. And how did God respond? He responded by requiring their lives. So that the people in this new community of faith called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ would never forget that you cannot play dilly-dally with God when it comes to matters of sin and obedience. God takes it very seriously. So again, acceptable worship always begins with an awareness of the holiness of God. And sometimes, truth be told, we are. We're in a hurry. We're coming. We're going. We got a lot on our minds. And sometimes it's easy to come into a worship gathering unaware of the holiness of God. We don't always think about that when we gather for worship. You know what holiness is, don't you? When we apply that to God, holiness is God's, I call it God's extreme otherness. It is how God is most unlike us, His creation. Perfect, pure, unblemished in every respect, completely incorruptible. And when we miss that, when we fail to gaze on the holiness of God and to focus on the wonder of God, is it not true that what we do easily becomes more about us than about God? See, that's the danger of worship. If it's corrupted, it becomes more about us than about God so that we bring in the evaluation sheet. All right, let me tick off the list this morning. Songs, yeah, they were pretty good. And sermon, I put me to sleep today. I know, sometimes I've fallen asleep in my own sermons. So we check them off. That's consumer worship. Nowhere in there anywhere is a thought about anything related to God. We haven't gazed on His holiness. We haven't focused on His 
glory. I'll tell you what that is. It's religious motion. It's not corporate devotion. And there's a big difference between corporate devotion and going through religious motion. And if all we do is go through religious motion, not just here, but at any other assembled gathering of the people of God, if all that is, is devolved religious motion, God just says what? Just don't give it. I'd rather not have it at all. Look at verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would what? Say it out loud. Who would what? Shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar. How? In vain. To no effect. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Now, 300 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah, right out of the gate in Isaiah chapter 1, focuses on exactly the same thing. Only their fundamental issue had become idolatry. And Isaiah preaches this same message to Israel by telling them that God hated their religious feast, despising their religious assemblies and their worthless offerings, wanted nothing to do with the raising of the hands or the emptiness of their prayers. And you know what God told them then? Your hands are full of blood. And as a result, I will hide my eyes from you and cover my ears. Here in Malachi basically says the same thing, only with different language. God says here, they might as well shut the doors because those sacrifices are a waste of time. And why would God say that? Because he knew their heart. Yeah, they were gathering and they were praying and they were offering sacrifice and they were shedding blood. They were doing all of those things that they were required to do, but their hearts were far from God. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their religious expression have become nothing more than empty traditions. Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Host, shall I accept that from your hand? Now that's quite an indictment because what they were doing was seeing the worship of God as a burden, like a job that they didn't really want to get up and go to in the morning. As I was reading this this week, I couldn't help but think of King David who said very famously, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. These people, I mean, that's just a statement of joy. Somebody mentions gathering together to worship and praise God. David said, I rejoice even at the thought of doing that. But when somebody said, hey, let's go down to the temple to these people, they responded with a snort. I thought about doing that audibly before you today, and I second-guessed and said no. I mean, you know what that is. It's just this, it's this verbal exhalation of disgust, a deep groan or a sigh. <sighs> I'd say I did it. I did it anyway. What would be our modern equivalent? You text somebody, hey, let's, would you want to go to church with me today? And the response is the emoji with the rolled eyes. That's what they were doing. They rolled their eyes. They responded with Disgust. And they didn't try to conceal it. 
I think it's interesting. I was reading a few days ago the 2020 State of the Church report that's published by the uh, Barna Group, which is a Christian think tank. 48% of self-identified Christians, 48%, so might as well say 50%, half of self-identified Christians profess of being tired of their worship service at their church. And a full third, 32%, confess to leaving their worship service disappointed most of the time, finding worship unproductive and monotonous. All we did was sing, pray, and listen to preaching and give an offering. And so their implied response, is there nothing else on the menu? To which I would respond, no, no. I mean, what do you want, dancing bears? No, there ain't anything else on the menu because this is what we do. It's what the church has done for 2,000 years, brothers and sisters. We gather, we pray, we preach the gospel, we sing songs of praise, making melody in our heart unto the Lord. We break bread together, we fellowship, we take the Lord's Supper together, we baptize as an expression of our faith. This is what the church has always done. It's what we do today. It's what we'll be doing this time next year and five years from now and 20 years from now, should the Lord tarry. This is what we do. And I'm just here to say this morning, it's not what we do, it's our attitude toward what we do that makes all the difference. I mean, this is why it's important that we understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. Why do we sing? Why do we preach? What's the point of giving an offering? And how inappropriate to come into the house of the Lord and have singing and not sing. Or have preaching and use it as an opportunity to text message with your friend. Or have the opportunity to give an offering and decide to just keep the whole ball of wax for yourself. When the Bible says, no investment, no real worship. See, the good news is, and God would say, if that's the case, man, maybe it's time for somebody to get up and shut the door. Because that's when we've gone into self-centered worship, which is no worship at all. Good news is it doesn't have to happen. There's a way out. You know what the way out is? Here's it. Here it is. You already know it before I even say it. Confession and repentance, that's the way out. That's the theme of the book of Malachi. It's in the third chapter. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That's the way out. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. As God told King Solomon in a dream, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Malachi says here in verse 9, now entreat the face of God or the favor of God that he may be gracious unto you. Entreat the favor of God. To entreat is to make an urgent appeal. And that's what he tells the people to do. Get before God. Confess your sins. 
stroke the face of God. That's what that concept means in Hebrew. Soften the face of God. Stroke the face of God. Because if we fail to do that, we'll be eventually confronted with a third reality here, namely that God's blessing will be removed from the hypocritical and given to others who will worship faithfully. Did you get that? God's blessing will be removed from the hypocritical and given to others who will worship faithfully. What would happen if the doors to the house of God were to be shut? What would have happened to Israel if they'd have just been absorbed into the people around them? Well, God makes it clear that if that were the case, He'd just turn to the Gentiles to find a people that would be faithful to give Him the honor and the glory and the fear that He so wonderfully deserves. He'd just turn to other people. In fact, there's a passage that says in the Bible that if you fail to cry out to God, he'll just turn to the rocks and even the rocks would cry out to God. God just takes his glory elsewhere. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And uh, what kind of offering? Say it out loud, please. And a pure offering. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. It happened to Jesus. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to them that believe on his name. In fact, among the last words of Jesus are found in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And there in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus has words for seven named churches. Churches throughout the Roman province of Asia that at one time had been preaching the gospel, seeing people saved. They'd been fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples, baptizing people seeing great change come to their community. But for the most part, all of that had stopped. And they began to drift. And the drift led to complacency in most all of them. Complacency led to indifference, and the indifference eventually led to loss. Christ, for example, told the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, I have this against you, that you have what? Say it out loud. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And then he gives the prescription in verse 5. Repent and do the works you did at first. For if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Oh, they wouldn't lose their salvation, but they would lose the gospel light. They'd lose their witness. They would lose their influence in a community that desperately needed to know Jesus. I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Churches focus on a lot of really good things. 
missions, evangelism, fellowship, community service, all of those things are what we do as a people, and they're very important. But let me just say, none of those things are more important than the assembled worship of the people of God before a holy and righteous God. Nothing's more important than worship. Nothing is more important. All of those things and our effectiveness in them flow from a heart of a people of God that's desperately and deeply connected to God in life and in living and in spiritual vitality through the worship of God. A people who love God, who honor God, and who fear God with every part of their life. And the end result of that is what? The world learns of the greatness of God through a people whose face is a bright with glow because they stand and live and walk and identify in the very presence of a God they know to be holy, a God worthy of our very best. This, brothers and sisters, is our greatest responsibility as a people of God, and we do well never to forget it. This is God's Word, and all God's people said, amen.